I'll read Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that you spoke to Joshua so long ago, and we know that they are true and uh, true to us this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And we thank you, Lord, that you alone can fulfill all of your words and promises. You are not a man that you should lie, and you are not a man that you can fall short of what you promise. We give you thanks now, in Christ's name and for the building up of his kingdom. Amen. So this is the second of a three-part series on Joshua, the roles of Joshua. As I was reading and analyzing Joshua this week, it was really hard not to be distracted by many other potential good messages that could come out of this book. But the topic today is Joshua the Courageous Leader. So last week we talked about him as the faithful follower, today as the Courageous Leader, and next week as the Influential Guide. And this one, Courageous Leader, covers the bulk of the book of Joshua, all except for the last couple of chapters. I'm going to cover those 24 traits that we mentioned last week. Remember, they were traits of followership. They were traits that Joshua exhibited as a follower of Moses. And I'll uh, present them in eight vignettes. Last week I had 10, but I consolidated a couple. So first, in the war with Amalek, that's the first time we see Joshua, there were five things that Joshua reflected. He was available to Moses for that role. He was dependable. His reputation preceded him. He was obedient in the command Moses gave him to go attack the Amalekites. He was steadfast in pursuing them. Moses would raise his arms and they would be victorious. His arms would drop, they would not be. And also he was invested. God, when he's speaking with Moses, he said, record this and then speak it in Joshua's hearing that one day I will extinguish the Amalekites from the earth. 
So God knew Joshua's heart. He knew Joshua wanted to continue this battle with the Amalekites to the end. He vanquished them that day on the field, but they fled. They were going to live to fight another day, and he wanted to go after them, I believe. The second vignette is from Mount Sinai, both when he climbed it with Moses and when he descended it. Moses called upon Joshua to go with them, and so uh, Joshua was very useful to Moses. And he was disciplined. He remained there all that time, not being able to know what was going on with Moses on the mountain with God and not knowing what was going on at the base of the mountain with the people. So here he is for weeks alone, entirely alone. And yet he was uh, counted upon by Moses to remain there. And then, too, he was optimistic. As they're coming back down the mountain, he hears the noise and he thinks there's a war. He would have not thought that they could have abandoned God that quickly. But Moses had inside information, and so he knew what was going on down there. The third vignette was in the tabernacle. Moses had set up his own tent, it said, far outside the camp. And that's where Moses, God would descend in the cloud, and he would speak with Moses at the door of the tabernacle. But Joshua remained inside it all that time. He was in there 24-7. And we mentioned that that mentioned his reliability and his sacrificial nature. He was willing to be apart from family and friends all that time that Moses needed him there in the tabernacle. The fourth is in the camp. The 70 men are going to be uh, prophets, and some of this uh, Moses' uh, power is distributed among them to help them lead. And two of the men remain in the camp, and Joshua wants Moses to rebuke them. And so he comes running up to, music, uh, to Moses. Now, he's respectful in this, but, and he's loyal to Moses, though, but he's bold. He comes up to Moses, rebuke them, Moses. What are they doing this for? And so he exhibited respectfulness to Moses. He calls him Lord. Loyalty to Moses, zealous for his honor and his role. Uh, he'd seen often enough to where Moses is being attacked by people. And then also bold in confronting the very man he has this admiration for. But yet sometimes that's what followers do. The fifth is in the spy selection. These are more inferred. The text does say that Joshua and all that were chosen were leaders among their clans. But yet also, you would only choose a person to be a spy if they could exercise uh, discretion and wisdom. And so these were aspects of his followership character. Now, when the spies came back and reported, I believe you can see humility in Joshua he waited. I believe that he was most likely younger than Caleb and perhaps even other of the spies. You don't hear him until later. And so he's giving deference to the older spies that had gone. So he's humble, and yet he's assertive. He does speak up when it comes time to speak up. And he's truthful. He won't back down. That's a good land. God's given us that land. And even when the people are threatening to stone them, he and Caleb stand by their, their word. They're not going to back down just because they're facing opposition. So they're courageous. The seventh vignette is when he is commissioned. Moses told he's not going into the promised land, and so he asks God to provide a leader, and God gives him Joshua. He says, this will be your leader. And so then one of the qualifications that's represented there is that he must be a man in whom the Spirit of God is. So he must be a believer. Sometimes God has given gifts to men, and there are very, very gifted people but you have doubts about whether they truly believe. And there are many churches in which elders serve. People are nominated and, and elected into eldership where their belief is suspect, but 
because they're very capable in some regard, they're appointed into that role. That ought not be in God's church. They have to reflect obedience to God and his word. They have to reflect saving faith. Also, some of the spirit of Moses was taken and the authority, and God said, give it to Joshua. So in a very formal way, Moses deputized Joshua at this point and gave him, imbued him with authority. And that authority was recognized by the people. And the last one concerned the future promises that Moses had made and that God had made. And Joshua was counted upon to fulfill those. A couple of them were that he was to uh, build cities of refuge, build cities for the Levites. Uh, the uh, daughters of Zelophehad were to get their land. There are several of them, not the least of which was Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were to go over, help them take the land, and then they were free from that obligation. So in this, he was honorable. He could be counted upon to fulfill this, and he was fair. He was also counted upon with Elkanah to distribute the land. So he was a man of honor. So that's 24. I don't know if you had time to write them down. Last week there was a cheat sheet. But the main feature from last week, though, was that we emphasized it as being followership, as contrasted with leadership. And yet what we realized, really, when you study followership, is studying followership is studying leadership from a different angle. Because we differentiate between leaders and followers in many ways needlessly. In other words, it is good to be a good follower. And from the best of the followers should be selected the leaders for the next generation. And not all in our culture abide by that. They think that leaders don't make good followers. They have to be somewhat brazen and somewhat non-submissive, but that's silly, uh, non-biblical thinking and talking. So now, today's lesson is about courageous leaders. So I've already mentioned two of those, both of those words. They were aspects of jo uh, Joshua's followership. He was called a leader and he was called courageous. So obviously being a good follower doesn't mean that you don't exercise courage and leadership. He did. And yet now we're going to go into very specific ways in which Joshua exercised courage and leadership differently than he had as a follower. Now, before we get to that, I, though, I want to cover three just kind of overarching concepts or topics. The first is to contrast the leadership of Moses with the leadership of Joshua. Moses was challenged repeatedly during the 40 years that he led these people. I uh, did a community meditation series a few years ago on that in the wilderness. And many of the most egregious sins of the people were in direct opposition, direct rebellion to the authority of Moses. Moses lived to be 120. He had those 40 years of privilege in Pharaoh's very household. He had 40 years in the wilderness where he's out in Midianite, all away from all these people, all these slaves in Egypt. Then he comes to Egypt. Those he administers over all those miracles, leads the people out, and then deals with all of their guff for 40 years. So see, Moses came out of nowhere to lead these people. And the people abused him for that. Whereas look at Joshua. He's grown up right with them all this time. And now he's leading them across this river into the promised land. 
he and Caleb are the only two men of that age that are going to cross this river. Everybody else is much younger. So, these people, now you might think then that the difference in their experience is due to the men, but I really don't think that's the case. The difference is in the people. These people that were brought up out of Egypt were rebellious. They were slaves at heart and they were complainers and whiners at heart. And God killed them all in the wilderness. Whereas now he's raised up this people, this obedient and faithful people who have responded when his Shekinah glory cloud moved and they've been obedient to him. Now they've seen him. There have been instances of rebellion, but they've seen him in action and they are obedient people. They're not rebellious like they were with Moses. Now, I want to read on a little bit from where we are in chapter one, where I ended. These first nine verses, the very first verse says after the death of Moses, but number two starts with God speaking. All that I read was God speaking to Joshua. Now, in verse 10, we read, then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, and so now Joshua is speaking. So if you go down to 13, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land. Who's he speaking to? Reuben, Gad, and the half of the tribe of Manasseh that has chosen to stay on the east side of the Jordan River. He is reminding them of their earlier promise. They can have that land, but they have to go across the Jordan. They have to fight for the Israelites and help them conquer this. And there is no caveats to that. There's no time limit to that. It's an open-ended promise. And this is what they say in response. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. The Reubenites, without knowing, I believe, repeat the very same phrase that God had used with Joshua three times. Be strong and of good courage. And so the Reubenites are expressing, and the Gadites and the half-tribe, they're expressing faith in Joshua. Now there are two more, that's the first overarching point. That's about the difference in leadership styles between Joshua and Moses. The second is that you can't help but notice that there are similarities between what they are about to do and what Moses did in getting them out of Egypt. A couple are just obvious. The Red Sea was parted and all of the Jews came through. And here you have the Jordan Sea drying up. And it just pains me to read commentaries where these liberal commentators just apologize for the miracles of the Bible. And they say, well, even if God, even if God did this through some natural means, it's still a miracle. Well, sure it's a miracle. I mean, it's flood states. The instant the priests step in there, the water starts building up like 15 miles upstream. That's miraculous. Amen. So another one is that another concept here is that there, down at the Red Sea, they were fleeing from an army in fear and panic. What are they doing now? They're crossing a river to take the land. They're attacking now, they're not retreating. 
So that's a contrast between those two. And there's another commonality here. As soon as they crossed the Red Sea and they came in here, very soon after that, they explored the Promised Land. All of the 12 spies were sent. And here again, we have spies sent. Joshua in chapter 2 sends spies into Jericho to check out the land. These similarities, I believe, are very intentional. And as a matter of fact, God expresses after, the, after they have been circumcised, God says that he has rolled back the reproach of Egypt. And so what he's done is he, had, he has now instilled in this people again faith in him, faith in the promise that he's going to bring them into this land. That whole generation he killed off. Even though he'd circumcised them for that very same goal, he killed them off. Now he's restored that promise. This whole new generation is going to do this. So that's the second one, just a couple of similarities. And the third is that this battle, this battle plan is all God's doing. And I realized that I've been immersed in it and I haven't introduced you to it yet. It may have been a while since you've read Joshua. But it's God that dried up the Jordan River. It's God that gave Joshua the plan of attack for Jericho when that uh, commander, that angel commander, is there straddling the water. It's, it's uh, God that gives them the plan of attack uh, for AI after the initial failure. Uh, it's God that uh, uh, has them lead and win as Joshua, just as Moses in the desert lifts up his javelin, just as Moses' arms were lifted up as they defeated the Amalekites. And it was God that gave success against the Amorites later when they all attacked Gibeon, who they had been tricked into forming a covenant with, and yet now all these Amorite nations have attacked them, and uh, Joshua attacks them in response, and he prays for a long night in the whole day, last whole day, and they, again, commentators try to explain that away. There may have been an eclipse. No. God had the sun and the moon stand in place for the length of a day while he uh, fought against the Amorites. Okay. So there are uh, very things. Joshua, yes, he's a courageous commander. Yes, he exercises leadership in this. But yet you can see repeatedly that he's told exactly what to do by God. And sometimes it's odd. We'll get into some of those oddities later. Now, I want to kind of make one illustration here, and that is, at the time of the Reformation, the Reformers stated very clearly in the Catechisms and the Confessions that there is only one, one leader of the Church, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's Church is both triumphant in heaven and militant here on earth, in other words, uh, God's army has two divisions. One has been retired, and one is still active, and yet those divisions are led by Jesus Christ. You don't have Jesus holding the uh, triumphant uh, division in heaven and the Pope or any other person on earth having that sole authority. No, it's Christ alone. There's only one head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this battle in the whole book of Joshua, you can see God not sharing his, uh, his uh, success here and his plan here with others. It's very obvious to us as we read that Joshua's just being told what to do. And when he does what he's told to do, he's successful. And when he doesn't, when he presumes, he's not as successful. So now I want to skip ahead a little bit. I'm going to give you kind of an overview of Joshua for a few chapters. So they cross the Jordan River. They get across the Jordan River, and what's the first thing they do? They debilitate every man over 20 years old. Actually, every man and at all. They circumcise all the men. But they don't do it on the safe side 
of the river. They do it on the unsafe side of the river. Again, that's God saying, trust me. See, no military commander would do such a foolish thing. But yet that's exactly what God commanded them to do, and that's exactly what Joshua did. And so for a week or more, two weeks, they're laid up. Then they set up the memorial stones in Gilgal, the 12 stones that they'd carried across. And one uh, person that I read in commenting on Joshua said that the book of Joshua could easily be called the book of memorials. And when you read it, you see what he's talking about. There are memorials strewn throughout this book. And the memorials take various forms. But God, in taking the promised land, is setting up all these memorials. He's destroying cities. Jericho became a heap of ruin, a memorial. Ai became uh, uh, destroyed, a heap of ruin. These, uh, this uh, altar is built. The Reubenites build the altar of witness towards the end as a, as a, uh, a reminder that they're all one people. Uh, but anyway, there are just memorials throughout the book of Joshua. So in chapter 4, they set up the memorial stones in Gilgal. In chapter 5, the males are circumcised. And towards the end of chapter 5, that's where Joshua sees this commander of the army of the Lord. And he imparts the, the battle plan to Joshua in chapter 6. And we talked about this, I forget how long ago, a, a year ago, about the foolishness of the battle plan in attacking Jericho. No army commander would intend to take a city by yelling at its walls. But that's exactly what Joshua did. It's exactly what led the victory. Silently march around it for six days, then six times, then yell. And the walls fell down. In, uh, when speaking to Zerubbabel, uh, this was said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's why the walls of Jericho fell. It was by God's spirit, not by the power of man. And the book of Joshua is a testament to the fact that it's God that wins the victories, not man's power. And we'll see more illustrations of that. Now, the very thing we get into, though, is now Achan's sin. So Jericho was taken. But we run into troubles. So let me uh, go to chapter 7, and I'll read verses 2 and 3. Now, let me go ahead and read verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass. Chapter 6 was all happy stuff. That was about Jericho falling, lots of uh, restoration of the covenant, all this wonderful stuff. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. We know this now. You're in the know. But you go on to verse 2, and it's obvious that Joshua doesn't know this yet. He hasn't talked to God. God hasn't told him this. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy, the, spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all of the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. So what happened here? Now we already know, we've been given the clue that God was already angry with them. But something else happened as well. Joshua presumed. What they'd done by faith just days before with Jericho, 
they're now trying to do by numbers. They don't consult with God. They don't talk to God. They just presume that this is a tiny city. We're going to take it with just a tiny force. Now, they're using what we are all commanded and commended for using, and we're using our reason, our intellect. But you can't read the book of Joshua with that in mind. You have to read the book of Joshua knowing that what God wants is faith. And he is upending reason left and right in the book of Joshua. He commends faith and he criticizes reason. It's not that reason is wrong. God made reason, but yet there's a place for it and this isn't it. So see, reason didn't allow them to cross the Jordan River during flood stage on dry ground. It was a miracle that did that. Reason didn't lead them to incapacitate their entire army once they got across by having the men circumcised. That was God's plan. And reason didn't lead them to take Jericho as a side effect of a parade. Joshua's confidence is shaken here. And you can see it. You feel bad for him. His reaction is a little bit later in the chapter here. The men of Ai struck down about 36 men. Starting at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Now, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've seen this before. Joshua is using the very same words that many of the whiners and complainers used in the wilderness. And God is not pleased. What does God say? Now, you, you have to commend him, though. He tore his clothes. He fell to the earth before the ark of the Lord until evening. So see, he's lying there in the dirt, in humility, for hours. But he wasn't acting in faith when he spoke to the Lord. He was speaking out of his fear. He was speaking out of this failure that he's responsible for now. And he is at a loss as to explain it. Now, he doesn't get the pep talk, perhaps, that he hoped for from God. What does God say? He's, he goes on with the Lord. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? And so he does bring up a good thing, too. He brings up God's promises. So that's good, too. He began well, and he ended well. It's just in the middle that it kind of went a little sideways. And what does God say? Verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore... The children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. So now Joshua is told what's happened. And I believe, given the amount of communication, close communication that existed between God and Joshua up till now, I believe that if Joshua had talked to God before attacking Ai, God would have told Joshua, 
why he's angry, that he's angry, and why he's angry. And Joshua could have dealt with this without having 36 men die as a side effect of the failed attack of AI. And potentially having these people now, and you can see when they attack AI the second time, you can see that the people of AI now have confidence that they have a fight here. They're not, they've no longer lost heart. So, God tells him what the problem is, yet he explains to Joshua what the process for solving it is. And this is, this is really, really helpful to Joshua. What would you do? You learn that someone, somewhere, has stolen something, and that's why you've now lost this war. As mere people, as finite people, you now have that little bit of knowledge. That's great. But how do you begin to figure out out of hundreds of thousands of people who's done this? It would take you days, weeks. You'd be dealing with this for a while. But God gave him the solution. Do this. And so then the first thing Joshua says, he rose early in the morning and brought Israel in by tribes, brought them through, identifies Achan, deals with it. So see, he had to deal with it too. Achan and his family, sons, daughters, wife, all that, they're all stoned and killed. And then a heap of rocks is piled over them. So they paid with their lives for the sin of their father. But yet, also, hadn't 36 men already paid the ultimate price for his sin? That's the nature of covenant. That's the nature of our society, our one and many. Our sins don't affect only us. They affect our community. They affect our families especially. They affect others. So now, AI is taken. And I believe Joshua demonstrated courage in dealing with Achan as he did. Quickly, completely, uh, no mercy. Now, AI is taken on the second attempt in chapter 8. Uh, Joshua's spies had advised a small force, but God tells him, send the whole army. And so then it, it kind of breaks down to 30,000 and 5,000. But still, when you read it, God is giving him a strategy to appeal directly to the, the people of AI, their newfound confidence that they're going to make them run again, and then they're again defeated. So now, in chapter 9, we move on to another one. So now we have the story of Gibeah. The Gibeonites show up and they deceive them. They show up and here they are. They have this, this uh, worn out clothes, tired old animals, moldy bread. And they say that they're from a far country, but they've heard of the renown of your Israelites. And we want to make a covenant with you. We're your servants. Let me read verse 6. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? Good question. Good instincts. But they say to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said, From a very far country your servants have come. So see how they're emphasizing servants, servants. What are they doing? They're flattering Joshua. Joshua's just had this great victory, two big great victories, right over Jericho and over Ai, and now they're flattering him. He and the elders covenant with Gibeonites, and in verse 14 we see why. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. 
and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So it wasn't Joshua alone. It's all the leaders. They've all agreed. They're all won over by this flattery of the Gibeonites. What happens then? Within days, the Amorite kings hear that Gibeon has negotiated this covenant with them, and they are incensed. These people are treasonous. And they're fearful, too, because Gibeah is a great city. And if they're doing this, what are we going to do? So they attack. They gather all the forces. They attack. And this is when God wins the battle for them. God kills more Amorites with hail falling from the sky than the Israelites kill with swords. And Joshua is having such fun that he asks God to prevent the sun and the moon from moving. And, they, and God honors that for a day. So they continue this victory. They didn't want the Amorites to get away, to escape to their hidey holes. And so he continues to drive after them for the length of essentially a day and a half, two days. The kings are executed before the captains. This is where Joshua brings the, the kings out there and he has them put their feet on their neck. Say, this is what you're going to do to all the kings that we destroy in this coming war. And then he just slaughters them all right there. You, you have to realize how bloody this whole thing is and how people had to fulfill God's desires in order to be blessed by God. God had pronounced them dead. He wanted his people to carry out a death penalty upon this whole culture. Everybody. Everything that breathed. Little babies. And yet that is what God has pronounced. Death penalty upon these people. And he's having the Israelites carry it out. Uh, it must have been extremely difficult at times to do that. And I believe that's in part why they never really did fully dispossess people. Because they just didn't have the stomach for it. Who of us would? We just ease up when it comes to crucifying and killing and things like this. Not only ourselves, but others as well but I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, I'm going to move a little bit faster through the rest of this. This battle with the Amorites turns into, very quickly, between the middle of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 11, into what is uh, summarized as the southern conquest and the northern conquest. And so over the space of several years, they defeat uh, five cities in the south that are mentioned by name, many, many cities in the north that are mentioned by name. And in... Chapter 10, verse 42, it says, the Lord God fought for Israel. So as long as they were willing to get out there and fight, God was winning their battles for them. They didn't lose any of these battles. The only battle they lost was the battle with Ai because, they, because of Achan's sin. But beyond that, they just kept winning. And they just kept striking fear and panic into the hearts of these people. Now, Joshua was modeling war, and like he did with the Amorite kings placing, having his captains place their feet on their necks, he's modeling war for them. He is their leader, but he's not the only leader. He's raising up leaders across all these clans, and you see that. It took years to get where they eventually uh, got to, and what you read is this, and it's very puzzling. I remember listening through Joshua several times, reading through it, listening to it, and being puzzled by this. Now listen to this verse. Joshua 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land 
according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Now when I read that, when you read that, you think it's over. They've won. They've taken everything that God had promised them. Okay. Now let's read chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. So some point to the, this as an error in Scripture. They say this is wrong. But yet when you study it, when you see the phrasing, and when you see exactly what's being said and what's not being said, what you realize is this, is that Joshua, and God never intended Joshua to fully vanquish all of the land, all of the land that he's giving the, as a posterity to the Israelites. He's intending it to be done slowly. And long ago, Moses mentioned that they will not be driven out quickly because God doesn't want the land to then be overrun with wild animals. So God is going to do it slowly. Now, what it requires, though, is ongoing, steadfast faithfulness of these people that Joshua has trained in war to continue to do what it is that he's shown them how to do. And what you realize, even within Joshua, is they're not doing it. Not with the resolve that Joshua had. And so I'll show you evidence of that. Now, many of us understand this. Long ago, 10 years ago, long ago, not like this time. I remember there being a phrase mounted on a big aircraft carrier, and it was mission accomplished, right? We had won the war with Iraq, and yet several years later, it was obvious that though we had won that war, the battles continued, the skirmishes continued, because eventually the death toll of American soldiers climbed to more than double those that had died the day that the mission accomplished banner was placed on that ship. I believe there's corollary here. Joshua did defeat the armies of all of these nations that came up against him. He defeated all of them. And he destroyed many of the cities to where nothing breathed in the cities. But he didn't destroy all the cities. And then he couldn't destroy all of those that had fled from those cities, knowing Joshua's coming. So then they sneak back. Then they come back. And now, later, years later, Joshua's an old man, as, he's, as God tells him here in uh, 13.1. And he's telling him, you have not yet gone out and possessed this land. As a matter of fact, in chapter 18, verse 1, I, I'll read this. Now, this is after he's apportioned out the land. Spies again had gone out. They've divvied up all this land. And now Joshua says this. Now, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? So he's rebuking them. He's rebuking them for not having done what they ought to have continued to do. But they were tired of war. Just like we get tired of being good, right? Of, of crucifying the, our flesh. Our flesh cries out, no, 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 not today. Take today off. 
I don't need to be crucified today. I'm fine as I am. And so we do, we give in to our flesh. We don't seek to crucify our flesh daily to the death. And that's exactly what's happening with these people here. They're not pursuing the enemy as Joshua had taught them to do. And so they're not taking their land. They're not conquering the enemies that God has commanded them to conquer. So again, he sends men out, three from each of the seven remaining tribes, to survey again, and he would then distribute their land by lot. And that occurs through chapter 19. So now see, I believe there is a corollary here between Joshua and this analogy of taking the land and us. See, we are saved. When we enter into God's family, when he saves us from our sins, we're saved, truly saved. We know it. We have the Holy Spirit within our hearts. Yet, sin rears its ugly head again. Then we learn that we have to keep crucifying that flesh, keep exterminating the sin that will otherwise keep rising up within us to take power. That land was the same. You had these enemies that had not been eradicated, and they just keep rising to power from within this land. And then the people grow to be friendly with them. You befriend sin. You befriend the enemies that you should have exterminated when you had the chance. Now, I realize I've really just kind of told a lot of stories, and I haven't given you his courageous leadership examples, and so I wanted to, to go to that. Let me highlight just a few. First, the victory at Jericho led to presumption at Ai. His faith in God was, for a time, displaced by faith in numbers. His men came back, said, it's a small town, just give us a few thousand men, we'll go there. That failed, that plan failed. This was, from my perspective, a failure of success. Success can tend to breed pride and contempt. I'm doing it under my own power. So then they fail at AI, and that causes Joshua to question what all's going on. So now see, he's experiencing a crisis of failure. All leaders will have failures. And that first failure, a big one like this, where 36 men lost their lives, it causes him to just want to get away from it. Moses had done the same thing repeatedly. God, I didn't ask for this. Why are you making me do this? I don't want to do it. And yet God just keeps bringing him back to the plow, bringing him back to do his work. And he does the same with Joshua. Then, though, there's an immediate, another failure at Ai. And so this time they fall for the flattery of the Gibeonites. So that's just the way of life, isn't it? We think that we are safe. By success, oh no, oh no. After you succeed, you better watch out because then your pride and, and all your radars are down and now you can make horrible mistakes. You'll always have to be on your guard. After failure or success, there is no way to be safe from the onslaught of the devil other than to continually be fighting against it. Now, I want to uh, cover five principles of, of Joshua's courageous leadership. And I believe under each principle, there are, uh, in some cases, many examples. First, one of the, the primary principle of courageous leadership is to obey. And so that's like the primary uh, followership example, too. But as a good leader, you have to obey. And so that's what Joshua did really well. He obeyed God always, even when God was telling him to do crazy, crazy stuff. 
like walk through the water, circumcise the soldiers, uh, knock down Jericho by yelling at it. All of those were silly, but yet he did it. And God honored that because God honors obedience. And sometimes we have to be embarrassed. God wants us to be embarrassed of him because he's going to test your faith. Are you going to stay true to the Lord when he purposely puts you in a situation where you're embarrassed by him? That's God's testing you. Are you going to be faithful to God or not? The second one is that Joshua honored his commitments. And there are several that he honored. He sent the spies in. Now, he's told to vanquish everybody, exterminate everybody. He sent the spies in. And Rahab protects his spies. And he covenants with her to protect her. And he asks about her. He tells them after the walls of Jericho has fallen, go save Rahab. So see, he's, he's taking it very seriously. He's going, deviating a little bit from what God has told him, but yet he's exercising his discretion at doing what he knows to be right. This woman helped us. We're going, we owe her our, our fealty in this regard then. So he honored that. Same thing with the Gibeonites. Even though they lied, even though they deceived them, they made the covenant and they honored the covenant. And obviously that covenant required reciprocity for attack. Because you might think, okay, well, they made a covenant, but they were deceptive. It ought not stand. So then when their Amorite brethren attacked them, let them take care of our problem for us. But no, their covenant had obviously called for them to come to their aid. And so they did. Marched all night from Gilgal. Marched all night to Gibeah and defeated the Amorites who were attacking them. He honored Moses' uh, commitments. The uh, uh, Reuben, Gad the uh, half-tribe of Manasseh. He made sure that he talked to them before they went over. This is what you're going to do, right? Yes, this is what we're going to do. He renewed the covenant, uh, and this was all explained to Moses earlier, how they would set up, they would whitewash these stones, write the law on them, and renew the covenant once they moved across to Gilgal. He did that. He apportioned the land. He provided land for the daughters of Zelophehad, who had approached Moses back in Numbers 27. He uh, arranged for Caleb to receive land because Caleb had been one of his uh, fellow spies that had stood firm. Then he set up the cities of refuge and uh, the cities for the Levites in chapters 20 and 21. He honored all of his commitments, all that you can see, he honored them. Uh, even if, like with the Gibeonites, the people wanted to stone them. I mean, the people uh, got angry that the leaders had made this deal with the Gibeonites, but they protected the Gibeonites. We made them a promise, we'll honor it. He held people accountable, the eastern tribes, Achan, uh, the taking of the inheritance in 18.3 when he's lecturing them. You have not gone up to take your possession. So see, as a leader, he's holding people accountable for their part in this. What are they to do? Don't let them slide. Sometimes, yes, you must, but sometimes it's appropriate to, to take people to task for what it is that they've committed to. We, we live in a very easy time, I think, in which we tend to let people off easily. But we, at times, have to hold people accountable for what they've committed to. And then, the last fourth and fifth were what I just covered a bit ago. We have to guard against success, the after effects of success, because then we are prone to flattery, we're prone to pride, we're prone to acting in our flesh instead of in tune with the Lord's Spirit. We also have to guard against failure takes all the wind out of our sails. 
And we have to go back to God to be restored. And yet he will do that. He'll redirect us on the path that we need to get on. So these, I believe, are five principles of courageous leadership that you see all throughout Joshua. And we have this analogy between Joshua and the Israelites and Jesus and his church. And you know what's interesting about this? Many of you probably know this, but Joshua and Jesus are the same name. It's the Hebrew and the Greek. So Joshua is a type of Christ in the Old Testament, saving his people, taking them into the promised land. Joshua taught them to fight their enemies, just as Christ teaches us by putting the Holy Spirit in us to fight our enemies, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So Joshua defeated the armies, apportioned the land, gained the initial possession, and then he has the people take part in this. He's modeled it for them. And in the same way, that's what God does with us. We so wish sin would just be dealt with once and for all and we'd be holy and perfect after that. But yet, Jesus engages us in that battle. He requires that we fight against sin just like he. He fought against it and conquered it. And he calls us to continue to fight against it while we're in this flesh. The Israelites had to continue war against their enemies, and we have to continue war against our enemies. It just doesn't go away because we want it to, because we're lazy, because we mean well. So Joshua vanquished Israel's visible, organized enemies, but yet they were all in their hidey holes, waiting to attack the people in skirmishes, waiting to take them out like terrorists. He required that they step up and take on the battle. And in many ways, they refused to do that, at least not to the level that he was comfortable doing that. Just like with Christ, the comparison between the two. So we must be diligent and merciless in our fight against sin, just as God commanded Joshua and the people of that day to be merciless against sin. And so we must learn from Joshua's example. Father, we thank you for Joshua, for the fact that he is a, a, a shadow of Jesus and he led these people into that promised land. We thank you, Father, for the promise of a rest uh, that Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews speaks of. That hinted at Joshua giving it, and yet we know that it comes through Christ. It comes through that ref, uh, refreshing rest that only Christ can give. We ask you, Lord, to have us be dutiful and diligent soldiers, uh, exercising all of the followership principles that we've learned, as well as the courageous uh, leadership principles that Joshua uh, illustrated in this book. We thank you now and ask you to join us and to uh, be honored by uh, how we serve you. And we pray, Lord, that we would do so uh, with our whole hearts, that we would hold nothing back, that we would love you. In Jesus' name we pray and give you thanks. Amen.